Economic shrinkage in the second quarter of 2020 wiped out all of the economic growth of the past five years. Nationwide, schools are in the midst of a will-they-won't-they about opening back up, forcing some important questions about the susceptibility and transmissibility among children, and yielding some alarming answers. After surges in the South, Sunbelt, and California, cases are now beginning to surge in the Midwest, too. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, and I'm under a blanket in my house. The definition of public health is, and I quote, what we as a society do collectively to assure the conditions for people to be healthy. I'll say that again for the folks in the back. What we as a society do collectively to assure the conditions for people to be healthy. Let me break it down a bit to highlight the parts that matter most right now. First, public health is about our society acting collectively. All of us together taking action for our shared benefit is critical to what makes public health public. The second is that public health is about context, the places and conditions in those places, the sum total of everything that surrounds a group of people, everything from laws and policies to the air people breathe and the water they drink. Using collective action to change context, that's the heart of public health, and it fails when we fail to act collectively, and when we can't change the context in which people live. And one of the things that this moment has shown us is just how unequal the contexts in which people live and learn and work and play really are. And it explains so much of the differences in how people are experiencing COVID-19. Black and brown communities across the country being hit harder, in greater numbers, and with fewer resources to save them. The pandemic appears to be disproportionately affecting people of color. The new data coming out that shows African Americans and people of color are dying in the pandemic, and it's just a disproportionate amount. All of us are facing a pandemic. All of us need to wear masks and physically distance ourselves from others but the consequences aren't the same. Black and brown Americans have suffered substantially worse in almost every way. When it comes to the disease itself, black, Latinx, and Native Americans suffer two to three times as much transmission and death to COVID-19. Why? Context. When we spoke with Carl Slater, a Navajo National Council delegate, he put it bluntly. You have almost 30% of our population that doesn't have access to running water or electricity. And... CDC guidelines saying to wash your hands, not touch your face. It's very difficult when you don't have the actual material items to perform those duties. And that's just one example. Whether or not your community locked down early and stayed locked down long enough, whether or not there's a mask ordinance in place, whether or not good schools in your community allow people to work jobs that allow them to stay home while earning their daily bread, all of these are the context of COVID-19. And all of these are a function of our collective action, not just to pass basic pandemic laws and ordinances for lockdowns and masks, but also to build quality schools, force corporations to reduce or eliminate their pollution, provide clean water. And because public health is about collective action to change circumstances to enable health, I am particularly worried right now. Not only has this administration fundamentally failed to provide ready, reliable access to testing, contact tracing, or PPE, Not only has it failed to pass a federal mask ordinance or provide consistent, reliable guidelines about when to lock down or when not to open up schools or universities, but it's actively attacked the collective in the collective action we need to take this on. By politicizing everything from masks to the CDC to Dr. Fauci, it has waged a culture war against collective action. And who wins that culture war? Coronavirus. 
Worse still, this administration has actively promoted a broader culture of division and resentment. By branding peaceful protesters fighting to save black lives as enemies of the state and deploying paramilitaries to violently oppose them, they've attempted to weaponize this moment of reckoning about systemic racism that pervades so much of our society and assaults black lives. Rather than embrace this moment to root out systemic racism and reinvest in black communities, the president tweeted about keeping affordable housing out of the suburbs, coded language designed to play to the worst vestiges of systemic racism, like redlining. Today, we'll speak with Catherine Flowers, an environmental justice expert and activist. She's someone who's been fighting against systemic environmental racism for a long time. We'll meet her and hear about her inspiring work in Lowndes County, Alabama, after the break. My guest today is somebody I've been really excited to uh, speak with, and that is my friend Catherine Flowers. She is the Rural Development Manager for the Equal Justice Initiative and founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice. She's also the author of the new book, Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me here. You are uh, a warrior in the fight for uh, environmental justice. And for folks who don't quite understand what environmental justice means, um, how do you think about it and how do you define it? Well, environmental justice is when there's a deliberate attempt to place or, or deny access to infrastructure in uh, communities of color, marginalized communities, that, and, and rural communities that uh, have been neglected for many, many years. And as a result, they either end up with a lack of infrastructure to attract positive development, and uh, people are living in situations that are creating health conditions, uh, healthcare disparities. Uh, and on the other hand, where you find that in these communities, they don't put a lot of investment in those communities so that they can put landfills and uh, polluting industries there because nobody else would go there. But the the people that are living there are suffering as a result. And, and that's generally how I define environmental justice. I know that people generally talk about, you know, the polluting industries, like um, the ones that are sending smoke into the air, that's what they envision. But it's also the CAFOs, you know, the, the, uh, the factory farms that are in like Eastern Carolina and now spreading throughout the Southeast that's causing problems, or it could very well be in uh, places where big ag is sucking up all the water and the people that are living in the area don't have clean water to drink. And I think it's also an environmental justice issue where in Detroit, they're having water shutoffs, massive water shutoffs, because if you don't have water, you don't have sanitation either. And how can people fight COVID? And I'm glad to see there may be some action coming from the governor there to stop those, because I've been involved with people in the Detroit area around the shutoffs. And, and the issue in Flint around lead in the water. We find that around the country. So that's, that's a broad, broad stroke, but environmental justice issues shows up in various ways. But one thing that they have in common, they're generally communities of color or marginalized communities. Mm. So it is in access to an ownership and the consequences of ownership of the environment around you. And, um, I think that's a really important point because oftentimes you're right. Like we, we pay attention to smokestacks, maybe less so, you know, water and, and wastewater, but also the fact that, you know, it's differences in economic access to uh, your environment and the consequences uh, of that environment for you. 
You've written a book called uh, Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret. Um, and it's educated by your experience in Lowndes County in a community that has been hit hard by environmental injustice. Can you tell us about what you mean when you talk about America's quote unquote dirty secret and how that plays out in Lowndes County? Uh, and then maybe connect that to what we're facing right now in this pandemic. Well, the way it plays out, uh, first of all, America's Dirty Secret is that when I first started doing this work uh, in 2002, and I talked about wastewater and the lack of wastewater, a lot of people did not believe that this was a problem in the United States of America. Actually, most of the philanthropists that were, or philanthropic organizations that were funding wastewater treatment or, or any kind of investigation in the wastewater were doing it in other parts of the, of the world because it was not acknowledged here. And that was America's dirty secret, that it was in fact a problem. And I got in, engaged in Lyons County back in 2002 because I found out they were arresting people who could not afford, poor people who could not afford on-site sanitation instead of helping them find a solution. But we found that it was a greater problem than that, that there were other things, the technology just didn't work. And sewage was coming back into people's homes as well as in their yards for those that were not straight piping. So we ended up doing a study with Baylor's National School of Tropical Medicine, where we found hookworm and other tropical parasites in Lowndes County. And, and the, the parasites that we found, one of the things they have in common, uh, Dr. Peter Hote has caused them neglected diseases of poverty. And he said, anywhere you find poverty in the world, you're going to find these, um, these diseases. And that was part of America's dirty secret, that the wealthiest country in the world had these serious inequalities, these inequities that existed right under our noses and we were not paying them any attention. So it has been my quest, my mission to expose that and find a solution in my lifetime. And obviously when we're talking about something like water, it's pretty clear the implication with COVID-19 because one of the first things that all of us were saying uh, at the outset of this pandemic was to wash your hands with warm, soapy water for 20 seconds. And the quality of your water and the access to water, as you talked about in Detroit, um, that is going to change whether or not you can actually do that basic thing. And so it has real implications for this pandemic directly, but then the ways in which people have to live their lives every day when, uh, of course, the, the cameras or the lights aren't shining. And there's one person that I know you were close to who typifies uh, the experience that unfortunately people have to deal with this environmental justice have to go through, uh, who unfortunately uh, the community lost, who is Pamela Rush. Um, can you tell me about Pamela and about what her story tells us about the way that environmental justice shapes COVID-19 transmission and uh, disease risk? Well, in the case of Pamela Rush, um, I, I've been working with Pamela now for over three years. And Pamela actually worked for the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice uh, as a consultant because she exposed her life to help us to understand poverty. Uh, she was straight piping. In other words, when she flushed her toilet, it went out on top of the ground. But I think that, that what's missing in all the stories around COVID, especially in these rural communities, that a lot of communities are suffering with wastewater on the ground. And they have found that COVID, uh, one way you can test the level of transmission of COVID in a community is to test the sewage. So if people are living with raw sewage on the ground, they're living with uh, sewage coming back into their home from the entire town, 
then of course that's a problem because they're being exposed. And Pamela lost her life to COVID at the age of 50 and left two children. So uh, it, it, it touches me, you know, personally because I'm from Lyons County, Alabama, and it's one of those communities where almost everybody's related, including Pamela, which related to me. But they they have had in the state of Alabama the highest per capita death rate and the highest per capita infection rate in the state of Alabama to be so small and rural. Uh, and, and I think that the way it, it all plays out is that we have layers and layers of inequities that have existed for years that are now being played out. And I have termed COVID as a heat-seeking missile that's targeting people that have been victimized by these inequities. And they are dying in huge numbers. In Lyons County, we had a father and a daughter to pass away. The father's funeral was one week. The next week, the, father, the daughter died as well. So we have all of these um, this is an intersectionality of environmental justice, social justice, racial justice. I mean, it could take all day to go into the history and how it came to be that way. But all of it is tied to the legacy of slavery and, and, and racial injustice. And that's how it's being played out today because these communities have been neglected and these disparities are showing up in so many different ways. And, we, and I think that as part of Pamela's legacy, we have to ensure that policies are in place that get to the root of these problems so they won't continue as they have continued for years, no matter who is in the White House or the State House or wherever, we, we have to change that. Mm. And, you know, first of all, I'm really sorry for uh, your loss and the community's loss. Um, and I'm sorry that that so many still have to live in circumstances where they are left vulnerable to a lot of the circumstances that so many people don't have to pay attention to because of structural racism, because of environmental justice, because of poverty. I want to ask you, you know, if, if you could build our COVID-19 public health policy approach around the life of somebody like Pamela, what would we be doing differently and how would we be taking on this pandemic? Well, first of all, we would make sure that before we're in a pandemic, that people, everybody has access to decent housing and health care. You know, I think that health care is, um, uh, is one of the missing elements here that a lot of people that are suffering are suffering because they have health care, they have health issues and a lack of access to health care. In Miles County, there's only one doctor who's been there forever. Uh, there are no ICU beds there. People have to travel either to Selma or to Montgomery and rural hospitals are being closed. So one of the ways that I would, would change things is first of all, deal with these inequities around housing because that plays out. If you're in a small mobile home that uh, has poor ventilation and your family member gets COVID, how can you isolate? That's not possible. That's probably why we're having people with so many people in families that are getting sick and dying for that reason. So I would deal with the housing issue. I would deal with the education issue. You know, why, why are we forcing children to go back to school in the middle of COVID? When we haven't even, some of these children that are out of school, uh, the schools aren't safe and weren't safe before COVID. I would also make sure that everybody had a basic income, that people would not be forced to have to go and work on these jobs that do not protect them and put them in a position where they have to um, 
put them in a position where you either have to work and in order to work, you have to sign a waiver saying if you get COVID, uh, you won't sue the company. So I would get rid of all of those inequities that exist in this system and make it fair and level the playing field so that everyone could have access to health care, decent housing, decent wages, decent jobs, and protections. The only way we're going to be able to get out of this, there's going to have to be testing that's going to have to be accessible to these communities. There's going to have to be medical care, health care that has to be accessible to these communities. And I think that, um, and everybody's going to have to wear a mask, that it should not be a political statement that's made. I mean, if we go back and look at the, um, the last big pandemic that we had was in 1918. And when, I, when, I, when I'm reading the, the history, and I'm not sure how accurate it is, but the history that I'm reading was that Black people in rural Lyons County weren't impacted the way they are now. I went back and looked at the census records for my own family in Lyons County to see how many family members we lost during that time. And we didn't lose but one. That's not true this time. So, and we know that was only like, what, 50, 60 years out, out of slavery. So we have to look at what are we doing different now that, that, is, uh, that is, is exposing people to all of these inequities. And I think that the way we move forward is to build a model based on equality, equality of access to opportunity, the quality of access to medical care, uh, not having a criminal justice system that, that criminalizes people that can't even afford wastewater treatment. <laughs> so we, once we changed all that and changed these inequities, I think that the pandemic will not have as many victims that it could target. Mm. I, I really appreciate um, the way that you sewed together all of the inequities that existed before the pandemic hit. Because when I talk about this pandemic, I often think about it like a fire. And if you take the batteries out of your fire alarms, if you furlough the fire staff, if you have a small toaster fire, it's going to take the house. And if it takes the house, it's going to take the neighborhood. And we have operated in our society by putting poor folks and black folks and people of color generally in communities and spaces where they are fundamentally vulnerable to the moment that something like this happens. And you know, the, the frustrating thing that I find in a lot of the conversation is that folks can't wait to get back to quote unquote normal. And the point that I hope we learned from this is that normal wasn't so normal for a lot of folks, right? The normal that a lot of folks who want to go back to normal take for granted is not the normal that too many people in our country have been forced to live in. Folks who didn't have access to high quality housing, who were worried about being evicted, uh, who could not afford to buy, not even close who were in communities with schools that have been systematically underfunded for decades without access to basic health care because they live in rural communities, forced to drive an hour, two hours to get to uh, even a primary care clinic, let alone a hospital, who are on the teetering edge of employment, right? Jobs are a long gone thing, working gigs that don't come with benefits and don't pay a fair wage. And then when this happens, we all act like we're surprised to see the kind of racial disparities that that COVID-19 has has wrought. And, you know, the, the point that I always try and make to folks is that you look at death rates uh, to COVID-19 among black folks relative to white folks, and you're talking about a two and a half fold difference. But it's not just COVID-19. You, you looked at infant mortality, it's the same exact difference. 
And it's not like COVID and the death of a baby are have shared pathophysiology, right? Under the skin, those things operate completely differently. So it tells us is that what's wrong is what's happening above the skin. And we've got to be fixing the social pathology that patterns access to resources based on the color of your skin, based on the community in which you live in, and based on the resources that your community has had for a very long time. And I really appreciate your advocacy around that in reminding us that it can be something as simple as whether or not you get wastewater treatment, right? About whether or not when the, the toilet flushes, where that water goes tells you a lot about a, a given community. I want to ask you, you know, I know that you have been uh, extremely busy advising on, on this pandemic and, you know, advising uh, Vice President Biden about uh, about what we need to do to take on climate change right now. Um, how have you been spending this very uh, precarious moment in American history and what do your days look like? <laughs> well, my days have been full of Zoom calls. Um, I have been spending my time, I feel like I'm in a bunker during a war and plotting and planning strategy to get us to the other side of this. That's how I feel. And I guess if I was not, um, if I was not engaged, I would probably would be depressed. But being engaged and being on the front line, so to speak, but in the bunker, uh, trying to help organize and, and help support people that are trying to get us through this, so we can get to the other side of it. Because I think uh, based on what we're seeing in these policies that have, that they're just arbitrarily throwing out there, we're gonna be dealing with COVID for a very long time. And I'm one of those people that could potentially become a victim. So I have to be very, very careful. First of all, I'm a black woman. I'm over the age of 60. I'm living um, in a community where right now we have limited ICU beds. So people are being transported, you know, an hour and a half away to Birmingham because that's where Pamela died uh, in the ICU unit there. We have, because of all these things, uh, I have to rely on hope, rely on um, my camaraderie, the people like yourself to look at what it's going to be like when we get to the other side of this and also have a and play a role in, in helping us get there. So that's that's how I've been surviving. So I do a lot of uh, we've been doing a lot of Zoom meetings. We've been doing a lot of trying to coordinate and help people that are impacted in the communities. We're going to even be working to see what we can do to help Pamela and her children. Although Pamela is no longer here, she left children, and those children have to be cared for. So that that is how you know I'm staying engaged. Well, thank you for your leadership and your fight. And uh, I'm really glad that um, you're one of those generals helping us to get to the other side, because I know that the side that we're going to get to under your leadership is a far better one than the one we left. So I hate that we had to you know, go through this ward of COVID-19 to get there, but uh, grateful for you and your voice and your leadership and uh, all our best to, to Pamela's family. Uh, can you tell our listeners, is there any way for, for folks to be able to help support uh, if they'd like? Uh, we're setting up a, a fund for the children and I will circle back to you on that. So if people would like to, to be a part of that, and we're also going to be putting it on social media, probably tweet it out, um, and I'll get it to you so you can retweet it. And, and that way people would have it. Um, Catherine, thank you so much for your time and for your leadership and, uh, for joining us today on America Dissected. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My privilege. 
As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. This week, the CDC published the results of a coronavirus outbreak at a sleepaway camp in Georgia that's now responsible for 260 cases. As we think about the possibility of going back to school, the study has some chilling implications. The attack rate, the probability of getting sick during this outbreak, was highest in the youngest kids, under 10. The kids, of course, whom we expect to be least likely to transmit coronavirus. And camp staffers were at a high risk, too. The findings have really severe implications for whether or not we can even go back to school safely. Earlier this week, both Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Brooks made headlines when they recommended that people who are looking for added COVID-19 protection consider wearing eye shields. If you have goggles or an eye, fa or an eye shield, you should use it. I mean, uh, it's not universally recommended, but if you really want to be complete, you should probably use it. Why? Well, as we learn more about how coronavirus is transmitted, it's becoming clear that it can enter the body through any exposed mucosal membranes. Of course, the most exposed mucosal membranes are in our mouth and nose, hence masks. But we also have mucosal membranes in our eyes. And though it's unclear just how much COVID-19 transmission has occurred through the eyes, it is theoretically possible, and an eye shield would prevent it. Whereas masks both protect you from others and others from you, eye shields only really protect you, which is why masks remain more important by far. That said, for folks who are looking for optimal protection, eye shields will offer a bit more peace of mind. Finally, in our previous episode, we talked about how important protecting people's livelihoods were to protecting their lives. On Friday, enhanced unemployment benefits from the initial CARES Act expired. That expanded unemployment benefit, an extra $600 a week, officially expiring today. More than 52 million Americans filing for unemployment since March and roughly 20 million now facing possible evictions. Americans aren't just suffering more disease and death from this coronavirus pandemic than any other country in the world. We're also suffering some of the worst financial consequences. Unfortunately, it looks like that won't be changing anytime soon. If you want to save America from this, join us at Vote Save America, where you can adopt a swing state. And let me cut to the chase. Not to say that the other states aren't great, but you really should adopt Michigan. Why? We're not only critical to defeating Trump, but we've got an important Senate race too, and we've got to protect Gary Peters' seat. Join me on Team Michigan and go to votesaveamerica.com to sign up. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geisman. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening. 